Thanks for tuning in to the CoLive podcast, where we explore learnings, insights, and discussions with co-living operators and professionals from around the world. If you're a first-time listener on our podcast, just a quick reminder that CoLive is the world's largest co-living association with the goal to connect, educate, and empower co-living professionals. Today's episode has been recorded during one of our monthly meetups, where we discuss a wide variety of topics related to co-living. To join our network or find out about future meetups and other events, please visit colive.org. That's co-liv.org. This week's episode is brought to you in partnership with Young Global Living, the platform for your co-living space based on your preferences. With Young Global Living, you can find a new place to live, discover new work opportunities, and connect with other community members all on one platform. Young Global Living wants to make experiences the new kind of living by matching co-livers with like-minded communities and providing co-livers with local perks where location is no longer a barrier. Feel free to look in the show description for more info on Young Global Living, as well as a link to their website, Young Global Living, where you want to be. Let's hop right in to today's episode. Because we're going to start to go into the content of today's session, which is really about kind of understanding, you know, how to navigate the uncertainty of this time. It's really about how can we make investment work for co-living other PRS strategies in the context, in the context of um, perhaps the greatest kind of crisis we have seen since the 1930s. And we have just not only a kind of uh, health um, crisis, but also have an economic downturn coming our way as well. But still, there is a lot of, I think, co-living and other PRS strategies that they have proven to be extremely resistant, as resilient in the context of the strategy. So it's important that we figure out how can we continue to grow um, co-living and other PRS strategies in context that we are living. So to help us to navigate that, I will bring, first of all, Anna Gomez, who is the head of the, of the urban development for Cushman Wakefield, uh, perhaps to provide a context for today's strategy. What we're going to do is talk a little bit about what the market is doing in Portugal. And Anna, there is no one better in Portugal to do that than Anna. She knows a lot about this. So without further ado, I'll ask Anna to provide a 10-minute presentation on what she sees is happening in the market in Portugal. Anna, be welcome. Thank you, uh, Williams. I'm going to uh, share my presentation now. Okay, I hope everyone can see. Um, well, I, I think um, I, I thought it would be best to begin with a very, very, very brief overview of what has happened in the last few years. Um, in the last four decades, uh, home ownership has been very strong in Portugal, mainly because the banks uh, gave very good mortgage conditions. And uh, for many uh, middle class families, it was the best form of having a money saving plan, basically. Um, also, the difficult leasing laws that overprotected tenants put off some uh, investors and, uh, and landlords and developers. At the moment, what we see uh, is that 75% of the population lives in an owned residence. It's one of the highest um, numbers in or percentages in Europe. In the last five years, uh, we've seen that there is a growing demand for uh, BTR in general 
for, for rental options. Um, and we've seen that it actually began and became more evident with the student housing segment. Um, it also, uh, why, why are we seeing this? Because in the last um, six, seven years after our crisis uh, that ended in 2014, our financial crisis, um, there was a huge boom in uh, the redevelopment of the city centers of Lisbon and Porto. And those were targeted mainly for the high-end luxury residential and touristic markets. Uh, so there has been no supply at all of residential space for young people uh, and for the uh, middle market segment. Uh, prices have escalated, uh, the prices of BTS projects, and the banks have made conditions more difficult, uh, not in terms of, of the, the loaning conditions, but mainly with the deposits that are necessary to buy a house. Um, I mentioned that uh, what the first segment in PRS that we're seeing uh, that has grown is the student housing. Uh, here it was evident the lack of supply. Uh, the majority of supply still consists of private rooms in uh, both in Lisbon and in Porto. Um, the PBSA uh, projects that have uh, opened in the last few years uh, total 4,465 beds in Lisbon and um, just a little bit less than that in in uh, in Porto, uh, but there is a huge pipeline for the next three years. Uh, there is, even with these, this pandemic, there is still interest in moving forward with these projects uh, in pipeline, uh, because indeed there is, it, it, it's very clear to everyone that there is a clear undersupply in the market in Lisbon and Porto, because there was hardly nothing up to three or four years ago. Um, why is this a growing market, the BTR in general in Portugal? Um, mainly because financing um, is becoming more and more difficult. Uh, there are hardly no projects uh, for rent, uh, no rental projects at subsidized costs. So the municipalities haven't built anything. They're not going to build anything and the government isn't building anything either. Uh, there's a growing number of potential occupiers that are changing their views of how to occupy space. Millennials, Generation Z, uh, marriage is increasingly delayed, smaller families, uh, the more technology, the more uh, remote work, uh, the business travelers, which is something very common in Portugal and has increased in the last few years, expect and even active seniors that no longer want to live in big homes that they are paying, that they are still paying to the bank. Some of the uh, mortgages that we seeing, we've seen in the last few years in Lisbon or in Portugal have been for 40 years. So people uh, are retired and they're still paying their mortgage, which is quite a burden uh, for many people. So uh, many of these occupiers are looking for different lifestyles and, and different experiences and also looking for solutions that allow more mobility and more flexible exit strategies because most of these homes in Portugal or many of them are apartments that have been bought in apartment blocks in the suburbs and it's very difficult to maintain them uh, when you have 10 or 20 or 50 co-owners um, and they all have to be 100% in agreement on how to spend money and invest and maintain those properties and obviously if these properties are not well maintained then it will be more difficult to value them in the future and to sell at a better price than what you've you've paid to the bank. So all of this is actually going through a, a, a moment in the market when all of this is being questioned especially by younger people uh, and by, by younger families and middle-class families. So 
especially in the middle market segment, demand is very, very high and supply is very low. Um, and uh, co-living, for example, could be an opportunity in, indeed. Um, it's sometimes, there are very, very few uh, co-living projects in Lisbon and Porto still, uh, and sometimes they are seen as a complement of the student housing projects. Uh, I'm thinking of one in particular which is quite uh, relevant here in, in Lisbon and Porto, uh, which is half occupied by students because indeed there is no supply. So it is uh, definitely one of the big opportunities at the moment. BTR in general, um, and yes, opportunities for the younger people uh, and younger uh, people being students or young professionals. For developers and investors, um, the, the focus point here is the need. Everyone needs a place to live. This is the reason why it is so important both for developers and for investors. Um, what we've seen even before the pandemic in 2019 is a shift from uh, for developers uh, looking at opportunities in less central locations of Lisbon and Porto. So they are not so mo much focused on the touristic uh, projects or on the high-scale luxury residential projects any longer. Um, that was a cycle. We're seeing an end to that cycle in 2019 and we, seeing, uh, we saw developers buying land for uh, the middle-class segment uh, already in 2019. What we're seeing now because of the pandemic and because of this whole economic context and the difficulties that can be foreseen for the next few months or years is that people will have more difficulty in buying those apartments. And therefore, what we've been doing in the last um, few months is working with developers um, and trying to understand if they can uh, transform some of those projects from BTS into BTR, if not totally, partially at least. So that is at the moment what is happening. And I think that is one of the big tendencies uh, of, of, the of the moment. Um, one of the issues for developers is that this a BTR project is always a longer, uh, it represents a longer investment cycle than a BTS. And that is important in Portugal because developers are very used to BTS projects. And why is it a longer cycle? Because when you're building to sell, you start selling and getting uh, some income through the reservations or the down payments during construction. Whereas if you're building to, to rent, um, you will only start getting income from the rents once the whole development is concluded. Um, and that is one of the, the, the problems that most developers have. Uh, and that also has obviously impact on financing. So what are the key hurdles for uh, developers and investors at the moment? Land supply and the cost of land, in, especially in Lisbon, is very difficult. And we've seen that in the last few years with uh, the development of the, the, the student housing projects, for example, which um, ha became a little bit easier in Porto than in Lisbon because of this problem, uh, the availability of land. Planning and licensing policies, which is also uh, very complicated um, and takes a very long time. Uh, just to give you an idea, many municipalities up to uh, very recently didn't even have zoning specifically for uh, student housing. Uh, so there is a, some adaptability here as well in the market. The sales market obviously is a hurdle because it's always a preference for developers. They always prefer, for the reasons that I already mentioned before, to sell. Uh, in, they're not used to 
the concept of renting uh, as unfortunately as happens in other countries that that market still doesn't exist in Portugal. Um, development costs, this is a huge issue and you'll see further ahead, development costs is one of the main hurdles at the moment for the middle class segment in general. Uh, government policies, the government is always making some changes to the lease law and to, uh, to, 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 to important uh, issues that will affect, that have an effect on the rental market. And obviously more than ever now because of the pandemic and the economic uh, context, raising capital for new developments. Um, just to give you some food for thought, um, I mentioned before that we are working with some developers in looking at uh, BTR uh, or transforming some BTS projects into potential BTR projects. Uh, we've done, we've run a, a model, an exercise internally where we looked at some uh, parishes in Lisbon and in Porto um, and around Lisbon and Porto as well. Parishes that are typical locations for the middle class families um, and we've tried to understand what the impact would be if we transform some of those projects, the BTS projects into BTR. And we've uh, concluded that indeed, in some of those, in most of those parishes, BTR may make more sense than BTS. Um, and why? For a very simple reason, construction or development costs in Portugal are huge. Uh, for these type of projects, independent of the location, we're talking about 1,700 to 1,900 euros per square meter of, of, of development costs. And if you're then going to sell an apartment at 2,000 euros per square meter, and I, in the cost that I mentioned, I'm excluding the, the acquisition of the land. In some cases, you have negative, uh, negative value. So that is the main reason why developers have not focused on uh, building uh, residential space for the middle class in and around Lisbon and Porto in the last uh, five, six years. But this is a major problem we have at the moment because there is a lot of demand and there's no supply. Um, but in our model, we've concluded that in fact, in certain parishes, it does make more sense to look at BTR instead of B BTS because the income stream in the long run, in the middle and uh, in, in the medium and, and, and long term, makes a lot more sense. Um, just to give you an idea of yields, uh, in our model, we consider there isn't a reference uh, yield for Lisbon, for, Port, for Lisbon and Porto in terms of, of BTR or PRS uh, for residential. Uh, unfortunately, because there are hardly no comparables, there's no projects uh, active in the market at the moment or that have been sold in, in recent years. Um, so what, what we considered for our estimations was a yield at four and a half for Lisbon um, and 5% for Porto. The numbers in Porto, unfortunately, are always um, a little bit less appealing than, than Lisbon because this, the sales values are obviously lower and, and the rental, the estimated rental values as well. So um, I don't know exactly my timing, but just to conclude, um, I would highlight uh, as key takeaways from this presentation that affordability is the big issue here in Portugal. Um, home ownership tends to decline. Uh, people, uh, younger people, young families are having uh, increased difficulties in buying houses and are 
desperately looking at opportunities to, to lease. Um, and there is a huge unbalance between supply and demand in the middle class segment. So this is the big opportunity at the moment. Um, because of the pandemic and because of the anticipated difficulties going forward in obtaining financing to buy, uh, developers are more and more considering transforming BTS projects into BTR. Um, from our analysis that we are doing at the moment, we find that in some locations, BTR may be indeed more appealing than BTS in and around Lisbon and Porto. We know uh, that there are new government and municipal programs meant to incentivize the increase uh, in the supply of resident, residential space for rent. And we know that at least one of them is really, really, really very good um, and brings, well, allows lower rents and um, and uh, fiscal incentives uh, for the developers, for investors. So it, it, it may be very appealing. What I think is um, the main getaway is that at the moment, the, the only way to actually motivate developers to move forward with BTR projects in Portugal would be to decrease uh, the cost of construction. Um, and maybe uh, one of those ways would be to decrease VAT. Um, 10 years ago, when uh, the government wanted to find a way of bringing in uh, or redeveloping, refurbishing the center of Lisbon and Porto, uh, which was very, very degraded. They did exactly that. For redevelopment projects in Lisbon and Porto, uh, VAT was reduced from 23 to, to 6%. And if there was a reduction in VAT, for example, just for BTR projects that could make all the difference in the world and motivate developers to move forward with more BTR uh, projects instead of BTS, especially for the middle class. Well, thank you. That sums it up. And I thank ever so much for uh, a really, really amazing content. Actually, uh, has been great. I think we, we, what we tend to have is people from all, all parts of the world uh, joining our session, but and a lot of people from Portugal. But it's 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 great to give them a context of the the the, the segment and the sector and what's happening. So thank you ever so much, and perfect timing, yeah, perfect timing. Uh, now is the time for us to go a little bit more in depth into this, and I'll, perhaps we have a little bit of time. So I was just wondering whether there is one or two people with a burning question for Anna around her presentation. Please feel free to unmute yourself and ask the question. Uh, okay. thank, thank you very much, Aliant. Uh, sorry, William, to interrupt you. Yep. Uh, oh. I have tons of questions about the Portuguese market, but um, uh, let me select the, the best one uh, and uh, I will speak to you later, maybe. Um, what are the cap rates that you've seen on the residential market? Because I saw that the exit values are not very high. However, the lease are quite significant compared to the, compared to the sales price, which I'm, I'm still surprised because I, as far as I knew, Portuguese market, especially Lisbon market, was an expensive one. And I saw that the exit value was more or less at 3,000. So yeah, uh, that's, that's what I meant by the middle class segment. Um, 
Lisbon is very expensive because in the last five, six years, everything, or I wouldn't say everything, but most of what was developed was the refurbishment of existing buildings in the city centre of Lisbon and Porto. And those were mainly uh, targeted for the uh, high scale, uh, you know, upper scale luxury and touristic segments. Um, and therefore those are really, really high. And obviously you have completely different type of, of values. I mean, uh, in the city center, you have values at 10, 12,000 uh, euros per square meter, uh, or even higher than that in, in some projects. Um, but that was a cycle of five to six years. And what we've seen in 2019 is that indeed developers are looking, uh, are, are, there was already a shift to, to uh, move away from the center of Lisbon and Porto because a lot has already been done and because the market has reached a peak in terms of, of prices um, and and to, to start looking for opportunities for the middle class segment. So these values are middle class segment and the parishes that we've analyzed in our model are parishes on the borderline of the municipality of Lisbon. If you know Lisbon, uh, I can tell you that the parishes we considered inside the city are Mervila, uh, Olivais and Lumiar. Okay. So we're looking at, uh, for example, uh, opportunities in uh, the Alta de Lisboa area. Uh, so this, this, these are projects for the middle class segment. It's completely different to, and that's the reason why it is not so appealing for developers. Because if you're going to sell at 3,000 euros per square meter, and you're going to, uh, it's going to cost you maybe 1.8, 1 1.9 uh, thousand euros per square meter development costs, excluding the acquisition of the land, you're going to have very, very, um, well, not very appealing margins. Not at all. I think you're yes. that's that, that's the reason. Uh, and of course, the rental values at the moment are relatively high, especially in Lisbon, because there's no supply. Uh, so there will probably be a decrease in rents once there is more supply in the market. But indeed, there is no yeah. supply. So from our analysis, we've concluded that in these locations, it may be more interesting to consider BT, BTR instead of BTS, because it, it does make sense. Absolutely. Guys, thank you. Yeah, another burning question. So we have time only for one more question. So, uh, and then we're going to have a longer Q&A towards the end. So another question, please. That, that's fine. This is Arasha here. Um, Anna, thanks for the presentation. Very, very, very insightful. Um, I was in February uh, advising on a, on a PRS project, important one actually, in the, just in the outskirts of central Lisbon. And one of the things that, that struck me, uh, has to do with the, with a product type. Um, it seems to me that uh, there's a tendency to have like larger flats, um, T3s, T4s uh, in some of these projects. Um, and, and whereas um, in some of, the, some of the trends on PRS, you know, like uh, at, at least here in Santiago or even in some uh, European countries, they tend to cater the demand for these, you know, one, uh, T1s, T2s, or just like urban, uh, for this younger uh, urban population. So what's your view on, on that, on, on, on whether there is, um, that, 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 that becomes, uh, becomes a challenge for the, for the PRS uh, market to develop, and as well as what are the, all the, the planning uh, constraints that you have in order to change some of these projects, which in fact was the case that we found uh, there. So we had to just adapt 
a PRS or some co-living uh, type of product to these T4s and even T5s sometimes? Well, what I can tell you is that uh, there hardly is no BTR uh, or PRS market in Portugal. And yeah, most, no. of the, most of the developers were always targeting BTS. So probably what you, what you saw was a project that was initially thought of for BTS. Mm. And well, because of the situation, maybe um, let's think about uh, targeting part of that project to BTR. Um, and that we've, we, as I mentioned, we are speaking to developers and uh, we are trying to uh, understand with them what would be the best type of concept in, in Portugal. It, any, a BTR project has to be different to a BTS project uh, because if you're selling apartments, whoever is buying wants, you know, big living room, uh, lots of windows, um, something that will gain value over the years and that you can sell at a higher value than what you're, you're buying. If you're looking to rent, you want something which works, which is efficient, which is good quality, um, but that is practical. Uh, and many times you have people needing one bedroom or two bedrooms maximum. So uh, what's happening in the rest of Europe is uh, the BTR projects are slightly different to BTS. You don't see that here in Portugal yet, but I think that it will happen eventually. And now is actually the time when these projects are being changed uh, precisely because they were all targeted to BTS. And now all of a sudden because of the situation and the fear uh, that maybe people won't be buying as much as they were before, that you will have to adapt these buildings into BTR. Um, actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because in our model, we've considered two types of projects, one for BTR and one for BTS, exactly the same area, construction area, but one, the BTR has more apartments and they're smaller typologies, uh, mostly T1s and T2s. Um, and the, the, the BTS, the same area, but a reduced, well, a smaller number of, 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 of apartments with larger typologies, mostly T3s and some T4s. So yes, there is a difference. That difference should be uh, taken into account. But we, what we have seen until now is that it's not that evident because most of the projects that existed and to, uh, up till a few months ago were mainly targeted for BTS. Great, fantastic, thanks. So, so it's great to get that perspective. And one of the, the uh, additional points of the Make Horacio is also we get a lot of projects sent to us. And, and sometimes what can happen as well is that uh, uh, residential then becomes, the, the BTS becomes the, the plan B of the project. And that's one of my concerns. I'm talking a lot to developers and investors here. Sometimes, you know, and just this week I was appraising a project and it was such a shame that the project was built with, with uh, uh, the BTS being the plan B. The project was built for BTR, but there wasn't enough density. So what this person did up is a project for a massive five, uh, tagline, which not neither good for one thing or the other. And that we're seeing here as well, sometimes project not being, projects not being, um, being perfectly built for BTR, but not with the right design, not enough density. So that's one of the problems. So guys, we have a lot more content to go. So thank you so much, Anna, again, and for the questions from Horacio, and I think it was Josette that asked, or Pedro that asked another question. So guys, thank you very, so much for your contribution so far, but now we're gonna go to the bulk of the session. And we are going to be talking uh, a little bit more in depth about investment in Colivian PRS at large. So I would like, without further ado, to welcome um, Chris Saunders, 
from uh, the investment director of the DTZ Co-Living Fund. For those that don't know, uh, DTZ created the largest uh, um, uh, fund in Europe, institutional fund for co-living so far, for investment in co-living. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that. And also, I would like to also welcome Anna Harper as well, the co-founder of Anglo Residential, um, who recently also published a book, but which can talk a little bit about that in a moment. So perhaps Anna, let's start with you. Can you briefly introduce yourself so everyone gets to know a little bit to you, a, a little bit better, um, uh, a little bit more about your work? So yeah. please. Sure. So um, it's, well, it's changing rapidly. I run a fund management business that aims to transform how investors acquire and manage UK private rental sector assets that are worth up to £5 million. So we use a proprietary algorithm to identify basically tenant-ready assets that deliver cash flow, stability and growth from day one. And yeah, I recently published a book, Strategic Property Investing, which was my lockdown project and became a bestseller. And um, prior to that, I worked at Deloitte, did about two billion pounds worth of transactions as a strategy consultant there and studied real estate at Cambridge. So as William said, the most recent work I've done is developing the strategy for Anglo Residential, which is a fund targeting a hundred million pound private rental sector portfolio in the UK. Thank you so much, Anna. Uh, a lot of knowledge there, and I have I know Anna for my times in the UK, and have always appreciated her, her strategic thinking. And yeah, um, yeah, I, I miss having you around, Anna. Yeah, it's good to see you again. <laughs> and perhaps Chris, uh, you know, um, can you tell a little bit about your interesting work at DTZ? And you know, both Chris and I are part of the GRI co-living committee, so. We're just coming out, coming out of another meeting from that. So please, Chris. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Hi, I'm, I'm Chris Saunders. I'm the investment director at DTZ Investors. Um, DTZ Investors is uh, uh, basically the fund management arm of Cushman and Wakefield. Um, we have just over £10 billion um, pounds worth of investment in real estate on behalf of institutional clients. Um, that's, that's spread across... Um, predominantly across uh, UK and continental Europe. Uh, we have offices in London and Paris. Uh, recently opened another office in Tokyo. Um, I guess, you know, the, our investments are, are pretty much across all sectors of the property market. Um, but probably in the last, I guess, the last five years, we've invested more and more into alternative sectors uh, and, and in particular residential. Um, and I guess the, the next um, phase of that is, is going into a new sector of co-living. Um, so in October of last year we launched the, I guess the first co-living targeted institutional property fund um, which is targeting uh, co-living, large-scale co-living assets, so 200 units plus um, in Greater London uh, was, our, was our first market we're targeting um, and so we, we raised some capital and we're now in the process of investing that while looking to raise some more. Super. So um, guys, um, well, Anna has already introduced herself, so we are gonna jump into the panel, uh, the questions. So the first question would be around this, the rise of this generation rent that we are seeing across Europe. I think Anna already mentioned that in, in, in the context of Portugal in her presentation. And that has meant that PRS has had incredible growth, particularly in the UK, but also we have seen that elsewhere in Europe. 
In the UK, the figures we have is that around 20% of all households now are PRS. And we have expectation of growth of around 27% in the next three years, depending on what happens to this pandemic and how pandemics affect this. And I think one of the, the kind of the characteristics of the PRS development is that, you know, it works really well in markets where there is high uh, uh, kind of a rising in prices at the same time a rising in, in, in rents. And, and we are seeing that very much in Portugal and that's why we're starting to see an appetite in co-living in PRS. But that has been something ongoing trend in the UK. And my question would be to Anna in terms of would be your view that this pandemic has, how this pandemic has affected these fundamentals? Um, and what has been kind of the reaction of the investment community? Are they seeing whatever comes out of this pandemic as a reinforcement of the, the value of the PRS or the SNS of perhaps negative? Can you tell us, can you tell us about your perspective on that? Yeah, so, um, so I guess one thing I would say is the model, the investment model that we have, it doesn't rely on growth. Um, and I guess one of the things that when we've done comparisons between the kind of stock, the kind of assets that we focus on versus co-living and build to rent, typically bigger build to rent schemes rely more on capital growth to make profit. Um, so the existing assets, they cash flow from day one. So if they don't stack up on day one, we don't buy them. Um, so to an extent, I guess I'm detached for a little from that, but you still need people to pay your rent. <laughs> um, and that's, I think, where the fundamentals point comes in. Um, in our favor as residential investors is the obvious one. People have realized that they need their homes more than ever. Um, and of course, there's some changes to preferences within that, but ultimately we all need a roof over our heads. Um, so fundamentals wise, in terms of needing uh, demand for, for the kind of stuff that we do, the kind of stuff that you do, nothing's really changed. Sentiment amongst investors, I see it splitting between two, um, two big categories, bigger investors, if, from my perspective, as a relatively smaller fund manager, um, they seem to overcommit to a particular strategy and then get overly nervous when there's a shock, whereas, and, and react for quite a long time. If you look at past crashes and past shocks as well, larger investors kind of react for a really long time. Um, whereas smaller players in the market, which I think quite a few of, certainly in my breakout room that I was in earlier, there's, there's a whole range of, of um, representation from different sizes of businesses. Smaller, more nimble investors are typically kind of looking at the opportunities right now, um, rather than being totally concerned that it's deep, it's kind of doomsday, um, which personally I don't think it is. I think there's a little trouble with collecting rents in some parts of the market, and that very much depends on geography and the kind of tenants that you've got. Um, so again, my tenants typically are not very transient they didn't really move that far whereas i guess with co-living typically they're a little more transient um so did i answer your question investors it depends what type they are larger versus smaller and the fundamentals if growth is fundamental to the business model or the investment model stacking up then i think it's potentially a bit problematic at the moment but if the model stacks up without growth from today's value then it makes sense to invest. 
today. No, absolutely, Anna. So you did answer my question. The other thing, going back to the point of Anna, on a lot of markets across Europe, you are seeing these dynamics between supply and demand. You know, a lot of demand for uh, sometimes the, the issue I see in Portugal is kind of really kind of you know um, critical undersupply, and perhaps you know my experience in the UK is not sometimes undersupply is is poor quality supply. Yeah. Uh, is the quality of supply that when you bring new products in, you know, they tend not to match people's expectations and you bring, you know, uh, what Colleaving and other operators and other types of PRS operators are doing, they go, wow, people are blown away and they want that sort of quality product. So that's an interesting dynamic. So perhaps moving a little bit more to the side of the institutional investment. So, so Chris, as you mentioned, you know, you and the collective set up this world's first kind of um, institutional investment vehicle for, for large-scale co-living, purpose-built co-living, which I think is really exciting. Um, you know, and, and having seen kind of the transition in the UK that, that we have had in terms of, you know, co-living come slowly through the mainstream of this strategy and being able to capture investment, um, institutional investment, I think is very exciting. So tell me a little bit about has, what has been the underlying reasons, because, you know, you, you're kind of pioneering to this and it, it takes an element of boldness. So what, what are the kind of things you saw into this that made the business case so strong for you to say, listen, we're going to go into this and, and, and be the first to yeah. do that. And what do you see as the opportunity today? So, you know, given the pandemic, there are some of the assumptions that you have made, maybe at the beginning of last year before you launched the fund in October, that actually this pandemic have thrown them out of the window or there are some things that have been confirmed and it's actually, we're glad we made that choice. So please tell sure. us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I guess we, we first looked at co-living um, when we sort of looked at the, the housing market in, in the UK, in particular in London. Um, and we sort of looked at the, um, look at the stock there and we really noticed there was an under provision of quality housing that really meets the needs of solo renters in major cities. Um, and, you know, it's predominantly the, you know, the growth in, in people coming into major cities to live has been really amongst younger people. Um, but the problem is lots of the housing stock that exists in is it's really designed for family living. Um, and when you look at a lot of the, the sort of the new build to, be, you know, build to rent stock that's come on stream, um, a lot of it is, is basically um, studios and one bedroom flats, quite large studios and one bedroom flats, that really are almost not affordable um, for lots of, the, lots of that sort of target market of younger professional workers coming into the city. Um, so really the only option that they have in many cases is to go into some form of house share. Um, now, you, know, you, you can be lucky and you can, you can move to the city at the same time with a few of your friends and you can all rent a place together and it all works wonderfully well. But I think the experience that a lot of people have when they move into a, to a large global city is that they don't really know anybody um, and you know, it can be very isolating for them because they end up in a, a sort of a Victorian house um, with three or four people who are, they don't really know. Um, and, and really at the... I guess the rent level they're coming in at, that's the only you know, potential option for them. Um, and so we, we, sort of, we looked at co-living um, and we really saw this as, as a solution that really met the needs of um, you know, people coming into to large global cities. And that's really because you're, you're able to have the economies of scale from the fact that you're offering them a, a smaller private space, but then they share the sort of communal spaces within the building. 
uh, which seemed to work quite well. Um, so basically you can get a better standard of life, a better quality of accommodation than you'd otherwise have if you were going into sort of a house share arrangement. Um, so you know, I guess that some of the benefits we see is, is you know, a lot of younger people, they want hassle-free living these days. You know, they don't want to um, have the hassle of going out and trying to find a, a property on, um, uh, you know, in the local market with three or four other people they don't know. They want, they want the fact that they're going to you know, basically turn up one day. It's all done by apps, technology. They can move in. Um, it's professionally managed. There's no issues of maintenance, no issues of setting up bills. It's convenient. It's got flexibility. They can sign up for whenever between 40 days and, and a year quite easily. Um, and, and then they get all these great amenities that go with it. You know, they get a gym in the building. They, um, they get lots of great um, spaces in which they can live and you know, large lounge areas, a library area, co-working space. So they benefit from all these additional amenities and services that are provided. Uh, you know, on top of that, you get you know, events programs put on, which you know, is interesting stuff for people to do. Um, and then, I think, again, the most important element, I guess, of co-living is, is you get this sense of community, which you just don't get from being in, a, in your own flat by yourself or in a shared house necessarily. You know, you're part of a, you know, a sort of a, a building community that consists of anywhere between, um, you know, it could be it's 100, 200 people in that building. So there's a real sense of community amongst people. Um, and all this can be done at a much more affordable rent than, than you can by going into a, a BTR private studio or one bedroom flat. Um, and I guess, you know, looking at the impact of COVID uh, on this, and I, I guess our, our general view is there's no fundamental change in the underlying long-term view of, of what's happening with, with people moving into large cities. Um, I think the, the four trends that probably get exacerbated by COVID uh, is really is, is the sense that people will look more to professional management. You know, they want their buildings to be professionally managed and the services that come with it. I think they want to make it easier to work from home. Um, so, uh, you know, having inbuilt co-working space and places where you can work quite easily uh, with that sort of buzz still going around you is quite beneficial. Uh, I think the, the one thing people have found is, you know, everybody's been able to work, but what they probably lacked is human interaction while they've been sort of in lockdown. Um, and it's interesting, there was a survey done in, uh, in London where they said that 55% of people were feeling lonely within, you know, during the lockdown period, which is not surprising. I think we did a similar survey amongst the collectives buildings and it's 25%. So it was a lot lower proportion of people feeling lonely and that's one of the real benefits you get. And I think that human interaction will be a big part in what people want going forward. And again, I think the other reason is, is that people are more and more want that sense of community. It's, it's people who have, who have had the sort of the support network that comes from community that have really, I guess, found the, the sort of lockdown period a lot easier than those people who have felt you know, very isolated in, in places where they haven't had that community support. No, fantastic, Chris, and, and, and you know, so reassuring and actually refreshing to see, uh, you know, a fundamental talking about, you know, this, this, um, uh, recognize the, the the value of community that uh, that comes with with um, uh, with co-living, and this is one of its unique kind of characteristics and what makes people buy in. So, Anna, perhaps going back to you and going back to Portugal a little bit, I think what we're trying to do here is there's a lot that we can learn from a very mature market, the UK, and we can apply to Portugal. But I think one of the things we have seen, as you have spoken about, you know. 
the potential of co-living and PRS in Portugal, it's undeniable. I have discussed this with developers, with the government, including the housing minister, and, and, and you know, everyone sees that there is a, a, um, definitely a need. And more important, that is, this is a product that has huge kind of endorsement for, from the consumer. So last year I was in, involved in a survey which tried to capture the sentiment of, uh, of um, the millennials in Portugal, the, the 1.9 million people who are millennials in Portugal. Um, and uh, I think was the, the, what came out was that more than 6% of this, this segment of the population felt actually they were not happy with their housing situation and more than almost 70 percent of them if they were given a choice they would choose shared living as the number one solution for the period of their life so there is, there is a strong data here saying that actually people want this product so and, and as you said it's not happening that you know uh, as quickly as we'd like so going back to your question perhaps not to 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 repeat yourself but what, what do you think this pandemic will do? We, will this, this kind of encouraging a lot of people that were sitting on the fence to now invest in Colivia and make it happen? Or that's likely to hinder more the prospect of Colivia and these things take longer? So what is your view of, of how this pandemic is going to affect, you know, the overall sentiment of investors around, you know, I think, yeah, I think that there aren't uh, projects, there's no supply because BTS has been the preferred option for developers. Yeah. It's as simple as that, uh, because there was a market for that. I think that that market is, has changed. And we saw that happening already last year. Um, and for younger people, uh, it is very difficult to buy a house at the moment, uh, because first of all, there's no houses available uh, for the middle class, and um, they cannot buy luxury apartments in the center of, of Lisbon or in the center of Porto. And uh, there's nothing available or very little available to, to rent. Um, so yes, they would look at either you know renting an apartment or looking at sharing uh, solutions um, one of the, one of the reasons why student housing grew so much in the last three or four years was that indeed uh, students didn't have anywhere to, a place to live it's as simple as that uh, because of the changes in the city center both in Lisbon and in Porto in recent years um, with all the redevelopment and sale of those buildings to, you know, luxury apartments, uh, tourism, lots of these buildings have been transformed into Airbnb uh, short stay um, buildings. And we, I remember last year, two years ago, there were students that were coming into Lisbon, Portuguese students from the interior of the country and couldn't find a, a place to live in that was affordable. And they would actually drop out of university because they didn't have any opportunities. Uh, for these people, it's very difficult to pay 700 or 800 euros per month for a room. But that is exactly what was happening. So uh, even with the pandemic at the moment and with the uncertainty around the whole economic context for the next few months and years, um, there is a market for student housing indeed because there's just no, well, supply is still very low. Um, three, we have about 350,000 students in university in Portugal and 42% of those live away from home. 
and some of those are, are foreign. Um, but uh, the foreigners are even a minority in the middle of all this. So you do have people in Portugal, Portuguese people that need space to live in, young people, and they just don't have anything in supply. But the focus of developers has always been BTS, especially in the last few years. Um, and what we already began seeing last year was this shift to the middle the middle class segment. And what we're seeing now because of the pandemic is that BTR is starting to, to be seen as an option, a real option, because it is very difficult for younger people, younger families to, to, to buy. They just, they cannot afford it. Um, I, I, I have a colleague of mine that was saying the other day, gosh, the day I bought my house, uh, my flat was uh, for me one of the best and one of the worst days of my life because I was finally an owner of, of a property, but I'll actually only be an owner of the property in 40 years time when I end, uh, finish paying the bank. And I have this cloud over my head every day telling me you have to pay the bank uh, and you cannot be unemployed and you have to have money for this for the next 40 years. So it is, uh, it is difficult. And one of the things that we're seeing, uh, we have seen for a while is that banks uh, require a greater deposit to, and, and they don't actually finance hundred percent of, 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 of the, the cost of the house, which we saw before uh, 10 years ago, up, up to 10 years ago, you could get hundred percent financing from the bank uh, easily. And you don't see that any longer. So it's very, very difficult for younger people um, to buy to buy homes and they cannot rent because there's nothing available or there's very, very little available. Um, actually in Portugal, uh, Portugal is one of the countries in Europe where people leave home, their parents' home uh, later and later because uh, sometimes you're 30 years old and you're still living with your parents because you don't have an option. Uh, and you cannot afford um, the, 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 the few options that are available uh, to rent. No, absolutely, and, and 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 you know, like one of the things I have to have coming, it's coming to two years I have been here, and one of the things I realized as an ex, as a member of the expat community here, we actually had to see uh, uh, almost thirty-seven houses before choosing one. So sometimes actually the issue of quality also also come here. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people are sharing houses; they're not made, made made to be shared. The quality of insulation is not great, so. It is a real challenge. So, you know, we, we hope BTR can, can really start to make a dent into this. So let's talk a little bit on about uncertainty, Anna. You, you, you know, you lived through a period of unprecedented uncertainty during Brexit in the UK, and you set up your fund during that time. So a, a very bold move and continue to invest. Uh, we also had to continue to invest and made, made, made a few moves during that time. But, you know, it's kind of nerve-wracking when you're going through a period like that. But now the uncertainty is even bigger in the current market. So, but at the same time, we have a lot of us seeing the potential of, you know, PRS strategies, including Colibin, and, and, you know, the demand that exists and, 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 and the, the, the business of the opportunity that is. And, and the opportunity to start to underwrite some schemes for this, to, to leverage this opportunity in this, this unprecedented time. But for the question, for a lot of kind of investors, like kind of, how can I de-risk this, this process? You know, you have a lot of experience of working in various, in various ways with the real estate market. What have you learned from this time in the UK of having, you know, what are the kind of things, the, the kind of the, the ground principles you hold in terms of underwriting schemes in a period that there is so much that we don't know. And I'll, I'll, I'll pass the, the hot potato to you now. 
Yeah. Okay. So broadly, I mean, risk and reward is, is kind of what influences every investor's decisions, right? I, and the investors that I work with typically have a very low appetite for risk. I like stuff that I know is going to pay. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm not, I'm not particularly risk tolerant and the investors that I work with are typically high net worth investors who they get their exposure to risk from elsewhere and they see property as a place for stability or yield and cash flow when it comes, but they just want a safe place to put their money. Um, so that's kind of the context uh, in terms of, in, in terms of risk appetite, Brexit um, and, and other shocks from my side, often they have a more, a stronger impact on market sentiment than they do on fundamentals. Um, because as I mentioned earlier, people still need a place to live. They still do care about transport links. They still do care about opportunity, economic opportunities. Some of them are changing, but they've been changing for a long time. Um, and COVID has really highlighted the importance of knowing exactly what people care about. And it's shown us some new facts about what people care about. For example, they want more outside living space, they want more space inside their property, they want a greater sense of community, they want to be with the right community, that kind of thing. That's all coming up in the survey results and all the, all the research, so we're pretty confident on that, but that's not new. People have always wanted to have space, it's just that they didn't spend so much time indoors before. Um, so I guess your question was kind of broadly around risk. Um, what? Uh, what else can what else can I answer? I, I think on a practical level. Long. <laughs> no, what I wanted to get is to was the kind of like if you were to kind of underwrite a scheme today, what are the kind of things? I mean, that is all the strengths that you described that certain kind of reinforce mm. the case for a lot of PRS. Yeah. What are the kind of the two or three areas that you'd think very carefully of how to structure this and what are the kind of um, you know, as yeah. you are praising uh, a new opportunity. Sure. So Sure. So one thing is buy cash because um, banks aren't being very helpful at the moment. Um, so what's happened in the UK is, and I'm not sure what the dynamics are internationally. I don't know a lot about international real estate, but in the UK, uh, Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors put out a blanket uh, message around material uncertainty at the, close to the start of lockdown. Um, basically saying all of the surveyors had to value properties with a view to the fact that no one knew what was going to happen in the future. That has a massive knock-on effect on absolutely every investor and every lender because no lender will lend if they're not confident that they're going to get their money back and no investor really wants the risk of losing money. What also shows up in valuations from RIC surveyors is um, a huge level of nerve. So the kind of assets that we buy often, investment multiple, is the way that you you value the asset. So let's say you're in an area with an 8% yield and all of a sudden they're changing your yield figure and citing COVID and uncertainty, which isn't always appropriate and not all surveyors really understand an investor's appetite. So if you're an investor that's looking at a 30 year view, it's not really an issue. So I think the main thing on underwriting is what's your perspective? Like what's the term of your investment? And who else is involved that you need to rely on? If you're using bank finance and you need evaluation, that's problematic at the moment <laughs> because none of them are coming yeah. back very nicely. Um, and then none of them are coming back what they would have this time last year, which is a shame, but just kind of have to deal with it. Um, 
So I guess that's one thing. And I suppose the other side of it and the more positive message is probably most assets in the residential sector, in the PRS, and I'm sure in co-living, I'm sure Chris can um, provide more, more insight on that in the UK, are coming back with down valuations at the moment, if they're getting kind of standard surveys, valuations. But compared to other sectors, hospitality, like retail, it's not, gonna, it's not as bad. It's pretty stable. So maybe, it, maybe a 10% down valuation in relation to this uncertainty. But by comparison, firstly, by comparison with other sectors of the property market and, and other sectors overall, other asset classes overall, it's pretty minimal uh, in terms of impact. And the second point is that, yeah, it, it's, I can't remember what my second point was. There's material uncertainty right now, but if you've got a long-term view, I feel willing to put money on the fact that people will still want to live in properties in 10, 20, and 30 years time. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you ever so much, Anna. That was, was exactly what I was looking for. That's the more practical perspective there. So, so let's move back to Chris. And Chris, you know, you recently kind of have secure investments for some kind of pretty kind of important funds across the UK, you know, like the Strathclyde Pension Fund, which is the UK largest, Side Pension Fund. So, and Side just happened now, as I understand. So, so um, congratulations for that, first of all. But, you know, I, I think the basic question is how you're achieving this, you know, like in the middle of the pandemic, we are still being able to secure very large investment for these institutional players, very significant institutional players. Across, you know, not only the UK, but across Europe. So, you know, first of all, how you, you're doing this and, and how, how do you feel this pandemic may or may not have shifted their perspective on co-living on PRS in general? What, and what do you see as the opportunity right now? Um, um, apologies for that. Um, so, yeah, so that's the question. Um, I think the first thing is, is what we found is whenever all the, you know, we done quite a lot of investor presentations over the last uh, six to nine months, you won't be surprised to hear. Um, and I think that the first thing is every, every institutional investor we've spoken to, and we've sort of explained the, the, you know, the, 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 the reasons why we like co-living, as I mentioned just in, uh, before, is they get it. They, they really do understand what we're trying to achieve with, with um, co-living um, and, and how it meets this, this demand um, for young solo renters in, in major cities. So, so that hasn't been a problem. Um, I think that what's been a slightly more challenge has been just educating about how these, these assets actually operate in terms of the income stream you're getting back. Um, and I think that the, the slight, you know, the challenge we had to get over with, with educating them is, is that sense that there are so many different types of co-living in, in the world um, and they all perform slightly differently. Um, and, and so, and then also there's lots of, it's a very fragmented sector at the moment. Um, so there's lots of um, basically uh, providers, operators, but none of them really are publishing their track records in terms of what their occupancy rates are, um, how their, you know, what the rents are, how they're performing, how the growth in rents is going. And so that was very difficult for researchers in the sector to really cover the sector, cover the market properly and get a real feel for, for what's going on. And I think that fragmented nature means that, that you know, uh, it's very hard for, for investors, institutional investors who are looking at this you know, as a new sector to invest in, to really get a feel for, for what's going on. So they're, they're very much reliant on 
the one um, investor or the one fund to, to, and just the operating track record of just a couple of assets um, to base it on. Um, and clearly, you know, COVID-19 has, has added to that, that uncertainty as well um uh, because you know, clearly it's not the fundamentals of, of co-living are prs so therefore you know it's relatively defensive compared with other sectors of the market like uh, retail or hospitality or or leisure um but you know, there has been some impact on occupancy as a result of um some people who are you know, a transient product co-living um it's got prs fundamentals but you know, there are some people who have moved back out to you know, live with family during lockdown. So therefore, I think the, the occupancy rates, for example, have gone down from around 97% down to around um, 85, 86% um, in, in some of the, in the collectives buildings, for example. Um, so therefore, we've got a, you know, in a sense, it's short term, it's, it's convincing investors that they'll go back up again um, because it, you know, that's, it doesn't actually seem too bad a drop of occupancy compared with what's happened in, in traditional property sectors. Um, but actually, I think there'd be a great opportunity um, because I think you know, occupancy will return. It will return very quickly because it's transient by nature. Um, and it will really show you that, that the fundamentals of the sector are, are very much aligned with PRS. Um, and actually, um, you're going to see an income stream um, that's very, very defensive in crises like, like COVID-19. Um, so, so I guess you know, it, I see it very much as it's been challenging during during this lockdown period, but I see it very much as a, um, if we get through this period and show the robustness of co-living, that would be a great thing for the sector in the medium term. Absolutely, and you know, just based on the figures you have mentioned, you know, like kind of uh, just looking, I was talking to some investors last week, and they're saying, okay, actually you're telling me how you went up and down in terms of very much similar to, to, to collective, our kind of occupancy rates were, you know, were like, and, and, you know, the fact that you are able to stay above the 80% when the hospitality sector in the UK, the average last year, was a record deal was 79%. It's already mm. a, 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 a sign of strength. But one of the questions, Chris, I had for you was around, you know, one of the things is new, like to co-living, I said, the fundamentals rely very much aligned to PRS. But what about the operational side? Because the operational side is much similar to perhaps hospitality, from an institutional point of view, what is your uh, kind of your, the, the kind of reading that you get from from institutional investors? Does it make them nervous, the operational side, uh, or no? So, what what is the kind of? Um, I think I think investors are getting far more used to operational businesses. Um, you know, I think it's the, the way property is going as as a whole across all sectors. You know, even. In the office sector, it's becoming more operational um, with co-working providers. Um, I think the retail sector with turnover rents, so you're, you're getting much more concerned about the way in which the, the, the real estate is operated. So I think investors are, are, appreciate that that is the way real estate's going. Um, in, in residential, um, yes, you can go into straight bill to rent, um, but but you know the idea of going into operational is where you can drive the income stream much more you're in control of it so you can drive that growth through the income stream mm. it's actually a positive so yes then you may want slight, you know a slight little bit extra on the yield compared with build to rent but you're, you're getting underlying exactly the same demand income stream from the same people who are occupying build to rent but you're able to provide extra services to these people which basically allows you to drive further growth into the property 
and also you can drive the bottom line as well in terms of the operating costs by by being an efficient manager you can get basically more profit out of it so i think investors like that angle that they can get extra yeah. return from it over and above a simple uh, build to rent model where the yields are you know, frankly quite low uh, in many of the global major global cities now you're talking about yields of sort of circa three percent in london Whereas you know, on on a co-living asset, we can get uh, you know four and a half percent. So that's a much higher yield which you're getting for, uh, and still with just the same growth prospects, and if anything, slightly more growth prospects because you can drive the operating side as well as the the the, um, the revenue line. Super. And Anna, I'm just conscious of time for the Q and A, but I want to try to fit in one more question for you and Chris. So. The question for you, Anna, would be like, as a strategist, I have known you, you know, like since the pretty much the beginning when we got to know each other, you always had all these thoughts around strategy, what to do in the market. You're a great reader of the market. So what would you be your best advice in terms of strategy as we stand? Is about sit and hold and wait. There is a lot of people talking about a lot of distresses assets, perhaps coming to the market in Q3 or a little bit later as the government support ends. What is your take on a strategy right now? And also in terms of the general portfolio, what are kind of asset classes, geographies, you see great potential in? Yeah, well, I, I can't advise anyone else. I'm not um, mm -hmm. <laughs> here to give anyone else specific advice, but I can certainly tell you what I'm doing. Um, yeah. So I think one of the things that Chris mentioned um, just now is, is bang on. There's a lot of gains to be had by not just doing some it's not just about what you're doing, but it's about how you're doing it and whether you're thinking about minimizing or optimizing costs for long-term sustainable income to the extent that you can, which is actually quite a lot in any kind of private rental sector uh, investment at the moment on the management side and on the acquisition or build. There's a lot of fat that can be skimmed down. Um, when I say fat, I mean kind of wastage um, that can be skimmed mm. down without or even improving customer service and the delivery of investments. Um, so I guess I mentioned earlier that my investment strategy, the kind of investments that I do now and the investors I work with are pretty low risk. So for me, it's all about focusing on geographies that have lots of reasons why their long-term growth prospects are more positive than other areas and that the areas are more resilient. So there's certain areas in the Northern powerhouse, not consistent across the board, but you have to know your areas. So there's Northern powerhouse areas that are really, really compelling and have a better growth story than many areas down South in the UK. Um, and then there's pockets of the Oxford Cambridge arc that have really, really strong resilience and growth prospects. So those are the kind of areas that I'm focusing on. Um, mm. And then in terms of strategy, I said earlier, we do, I don't like development risk and I don't like time lags. So there's no building on any of the investments that we do. So I suppose that's another way to minimize risk. But looking at, um, looking at built assets, like the, the way to, to reduce risk and to reduce costs really is making sure you're buying the right stuff um, and then managing it really, really well. So we've sort of come up with this algorithm which identifies assets. Um, identifies the right kind of assets, which is what has been a lot of my focus over the last little while. Um, and that takes away the emotional element of the decision because it's very clear cut. What are you buying? Um, has, it's, has, it's kind of optimized already from day one. Um, and then managing things well and, 
a lot of a lot of um, players in the market historically have failed to keep up with technological progress that shows itself in other industries. So what seems like hot technology for a property investor is basically just often catching up with what everyone else is doing in other industries, but actually it makes a huge difference getting that getting the technology right um, and the systems around it, because it's not just about having bleeding edge technology, it's about having people that know how to use the technology um, and are willing to use it to keep costs low, to keep customer service high. Absolutely. Uh, so no, thank you so much for your perspective on that. And you know, perhaps one final question for Chris before we jump in. Perhaps uh, I think we're going to have time for maybe just a, you know ten minutes of Q and A. So, so Chris, one question that you know I I can't leave this um, this event without asking you. So right now, what we see is a, is a whole living sector, a pure sector that is very fragmented, as you have mentioned, but also one that's you know there are few institutional grade players. And a lot of players that, you know, I remember when we started in Colibri, we have about 40 players. Now we're getting to 700 globally, that Golden South kind of Colibri operators. So, but one of the things that we need in order for to become a mainstream reality across the world and across Europe is that for more of these players to be able to become institutional, right? So they are they're able to pass the due diligence of organizations such as yourself. So what's your feeling on the kind of the building blocks? So, what, what these brands need to do for them to achieve that the, that sort of level that they would be able to work with organizations and 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 and, and collaborate investments with you. I think the first point is it, it takes a lot of time. Um, you know, and we've been working with the collective for over three years. You know, we launched the fund only in October last year, but it's for over three years been working with them. So you know, to to get investors' confidence. Um, you know, it, you, in defining that right investment part, partner to work with you. Um, you know, they're going to take a long time to, they, they want to know everything about your business, how you operate, um, learn, you know, be a learning about the way in which you want to manage co-living assets. Um, uh, you know, that takes, building that trust in your business takes a little while. And, uh, and I think the, the, the three things, I guess, that, that they're looking for, um, um, I think the first thing is, is you have to be able to demonstrate um, that you can execute your idea. I mean, everybody, I, I've had a couple of people who approached me since we launched the fund with ideas of investing in their business model, but all it is is an idea. They've got no track record in actually implementing it in terms of an, an actual asset that exists. Um, you know, and that's where we were lucky with the collective. They, they had they were the, the one party that had this, this building before yeah. co-living was even known to anybody. They let up 546 rooms in Old Oak Common, which isn't the, the best part of London to, to, to try and um, let up a, a residential building. You know, it's, it's, it's still quite industrial in nature, that area. Um, so they demonstrated that their idea, their, their concept of co-living works. Um, I think the second one is you've then got to have that pipeline of assets. Um, so you, it doesn't mean you've got necessarily own them yourself, but you have options on land, um, or and having that, that clear pipeline gives the confidence that you know when an investor is going to back you, that they're going to your money is going to be deployed relatively quickly. And again, with the, the collective, we've been lucky in the sense they've had they've got these at least you know, ten plus um, schemes across London which have planning permission. Um, and they're just really, really looking for the capital to fund these and develop them out. Um, so, so investors want to see that clear pipeline um, of assets. 
Uh, and I think the third one, which I think is, is, is a, bit, a bit linked to what I was saying, it takes time to build trust. Is really important is the ethos of the business. Um, it's, not, it's not just about having one person in the business who believes that this is the right thing to do. It's having that, that all the way through the, the company, the asset management company, everybody believing in what you're trying to achieve in co-living. So everybody believing the, the role you're playing in providing uh, new communities for, for, for people uh, and the business model you're, you're, you're taking on. Um, and it's amazing how, um, you know, if you, you basically, you know, the collective, they, they live and breathe what they're trying to achieve. They really believe that they're providing better accommodation for solo renters in London and they believe in that mission. Um, and that's what you're looking for from a, an asset part. Um, part of that passion um, to, to deliver in the sector in, in the strategy they're looking to deploy. Um, and I guess, you know, it's institutional investors, you know, in terms of if they're looking to invest in the sector, that's what you're looking from or for whoever you're going to invest with. Um, um, and, you know, I guess the only other bit of advice I give if, if you want to do that in London, then I, I know a very good fund that will. Um, which I can recommend. <laughs> no, absolutely, definitely. Um, okay, now uh, perhaps let's open the floor for um, for participants. Please feel free to unmute yourself and ask questions um, to our panel. I'm surprised, no question. Let's see what in the chat here we have. So, hi, hi. Yeah. Can I just, uh, just uh, thank you very much. My name is Jose Bolso. I'm from Portugal. I live here. Uh, I'm more on the, on the tech side of uh, in the development here. We are just doing a project, trying to, to do a project here around student uh, housing using sustainable, ecological, and uh, technique and technological stuff around it on in the countryside. I'd like to hear some thoughts uh, uh, from you guys about the new green deal from Europe uh, and funds to help us to develop this. It's more to BTR uh, and uh, uh, we are in the middle of uh, capturing some investments and uh, we are a local Portuguese guys here and uh, I heard a lot around BTR. I would like to hear more around uh, housing for students and tourism uh, uh, on the, on, in the countryside of, of, of Portugal, like Leiria or, or something like it. Thank you very much for, for the content. Sorry, Jose, can I ask you what's the specific question and who do you want to ask that to? I, I would like to hear from Kushman. Uh, uh, she she, uh, uh, she told Anna. us a lot on Anna around BTR, and uh, uh, and I, I would like to know more around housing for students. Is, is it a good now uh, moment to do it? Uh, uh, do, do you can give me some insights around it? Okay, um, well, I'll try and respond as best as I can. Um, in terms of, well, BTR in general, um, I think that it is mo more focused at the moment for the main cities of Lisbon and Porto, also for the reasons that I mentioned before, uh, namely uh, the cost of construction and, and the exit values. Um, 
On the other hand, uh, student housing, what we're seeing is the focus of investors and uh, operators has been the main cities of Lisbon and Porto. And now we are seeing um, some uh, demand as well for uh, other important uh, university cities that are not as big. Uh, but I wouldn't say Lydia. Um, at the moment, we're seeing operators looking for opportunities in Coimbra uh, and in Braga and Aveiro. Uh, from from the investors and, and operators that we've been speaking to. Um, there is a, an issue of cost and obviously of the rental values that, that will be obtained in those locations. And uh, the idea is that they will always be lower than in Lisbon and Porto. Um, and the schemes will probably also be smaller. Uh, but the focus of developers have, has been mainly Lisbon and Porto. And as I said, more recently, uh, looking for opportunities also in Braga, uh, Coimbra and Aveiro. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any other questions, guys? I think I do, William. If nobody's going ahead, I can go back again. Horashi here. Um, um, Chris, um, I'm, I'm, uh, it is very interesting how the dynamics have shaped, shaped, uh, ha has shaped in terms of the American players and the, the European landscape of co-living. So, namely, the, it seems that European uh, uh, industry is shaping up as this sort of a hybrid where you touched a little bit on, on no-tell, on hospitality, uh, a bit of short stay. Of course, uh, the student housing in Europe, you know, has been in the central areas, has is certainly more linked to, to, to the, the, the concept of co-living, whereas the U.S. operators have been more on the traditional PRS, you know, long-term uh, residential. So um, in terms of, 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 and we've spoken about the, the the fragmentation of the the product type, so it creates a bit of um, a particular situation where there's value in having these hybrid models or these blended models, but at the same time it creates some, it might create some confusion. What's your your take on that, especially on how again on how the, the investors perceive this? Yeah, um, it's I think over over time there's going to be a blend between the likes, especially particularly co-living. Um, and student accommodation you know for example i know that i would accommodate 20 percent of the people's students for example and and the rents aren't that dissimilar um i guess the one advantage i can think of of if you have a co-living consent or um is or it's more in how the, how the planning works in terms of how you can use the property is if you have a student block you can only rent it to students um whereas if you have a block which has a, a more open consent in terms of how it can be used um then you can and basically let it to anybody so you can let it to students if you want or you can let it to, to you know young professionals or um and really the, the actual product isn't massively different in terms of what's offered within the building um so i think you will see a blend over time of some student operators coming into the co-living market um and, and likewise you'll see a blend in terms of i guess the between the co-living market and the service department market um there one aspect which the collector of doing at their Canary Wharf asset, for example, is they have a blend between half of it is short stay and half of it is long stay. Mm. Um, and the short stay is, is almost people staying between one and 30 nights. And that's where they're doing deals with the likes of some of the businesses in Canary Wharf um, to take so many rooms for so many days. And so you do have this blend within the community of people who are there on business maybe for on some sort of short-term contract staying 
alongside people who see it as their main residence and staying for a year. Um, and, I, and I think that, that actually probably adds to the community in some sense. You've got this, this transients and these different people coming through the property. Um, and, and what you, what you want is that, that, that interesting, that blend of people. And there's no reason why you can't operate an asset and meet the needs of these different groups within the same building. Um, but I guess you know, from, our, from our point of view, the, the way you do that is by having lots of amenity space and having a very, a very sort of private studio for each individual, which has their, I guess, their, um, you know, their own private bathroom and kitchen, but not a lot of extra space within the room, but lots of shared space outside. And I think that can work across all those different, all those different sectors. Mm -hmm. Super. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Kevin, so much. Uh, I'm just conscious of time. Uh, um, one more question. One? Yes, please go ahead. Yeah. Uh, hi, guys. Uh, question to Chris. Uh, Chris, you just mentioned about uh, lack of human interaction right now in this lockdown, right? And uh, also with regards to hospitality, uh, if you see on the operational segment, co living also has that hospitality angle. So if you see right now, due to this pandemic, most of the hotels are closed down or, you know, they're renovating or, you know, they're going to co-working space, co-living space. So do you think in long run, uh, hospitality would be a bigger threat to co-living, you know, and they might convert into a co-working and co-living space uh, together? Or do you think that, you know, uh, hospitality and co-living will merge together? Because we are from hospitality field and we have been providing software solutions for them and now we are expanding to co-living. So I just want to understand your insights. Um, I, th I, think, I, think there'd be, I think there'd be different models, I think, to be honest. You know, I think there'd be some which merge the two together and some which keep it separate. I guess from an investor point of view, um, you know, our preference within the fund is to go more for uh, what in the UK is sui generis consents, uh, which is more the long stay model. So people taking leases or sorry, licenses between three months and a year. Um, and, and that's partly because institutional investors, like as, as I know saying, like lower risk. And therefore they see the hospitality, the, the one night stay where occupation is, you know, can drift quite quickly between you know, standards around 80, but can be full lower and higher quite easily. They like the fact that they've got people who are going to stay there, who see it's their residence, and are going to stay for, for longer periods of time. Um, so I'm not saying it won't work. I think there'll be blends. Um, but I think from an institutional investor's point of view, I think they're more, more keen to go into the sort of more PRS fundamentals elements of co-living, uh, which are more aligned with the student accommodation PRS than they are to go down the hospitality route, where they're then taking a particular bet on hospitality, which is slightly higher risk in our view. Okay, thanks. Guys, I'm conscious of time. Unfortunately, it has been great, but we got to the end. I would like to take the time to, first of all, uh, thank Anna Gomez for a fantastic presentation, Chris Saunders and Anna Harper uh, for a great, great panel, really informative. Thank you ever so much, guys. Uh, perhaps some claps for these guys, even if you can hear us. <laughs> thanks again for joining us today. And from all of us here at CoLive, we hope you learned a lot and maybe even picked up a few pieces of wisdom to help expand the co-living movement. To check out the CoLive membership that will allow you to connect with other leading co-living professionals, or even just to stay updated on future podcasts and upcoming events, head over to colive.org. Again, that's co-liv.org. Thanks again for tuning in, and we look forward to having you back for our next episode.